How's everybody doing today? Good. Yeah, well, you, you look good. Especially this section. You guys look really good. You guys look good, too. You guys look good. Well, like Mandy said, my name is Gino Allison. I'm one of the pastors here, and I want to welcome you all to the South Suburban Vineyard Church. Special welcome to anybody who might be visiting with us for the very first time today. Good to see you in the house today. Also, welcome to anybody who's listening to us through our website or through our podcast. You're also welcome to come and join us here on Sunday mornings. Well, uh, before I begin this morning, I want to just plug in a couple of weeks, uh, beginning of November, uh, the South Suburban Vineyard Church will turn six years old. We're celebrating our sixth year anniversary. And so God has done a lot uh, in these six years. He's brought a lot of interesting people, a lot of fantastic people. And so what we typically do on those anniversary services is we like to just kind of celebrate and sort of look back. Uh, but we also like to hear from some of the folks who God, God has used this church to uh, transform their lives. And so it's usually a time of sharing with testimonies and things like that. And so if you um, uh, have a testimony that you'd like to share, particularly as it relates to how God has used this church to impact your life, listen, I'd love to hear it first before you give it. <laughs> so if you're interested in uh, sharing a testimony, just talk to me afterwards. Send me an email. I'm going to ask that you send a draft of it um, just so that we can make sure it's an actual testimony and not a sermon, you know. Um, but if you're interested in, in, in sharing, listen, we'd love to hear what God has uh, done in your life through this church and through the people here. And so that's coming up in two weeks. It's going to be uh, actually two or three weeks. I can't count that well. But November 1st is our anniversary service, and so it'll be a good time of celebration. And if you're interested in sharing, uh, why don't you get in touch with me? But six years. You know, a lot of ministry has happened in six years. I remember when we first started this church uh, a long time ago, uh, we, we didn't know anything. I mean, we didn't know anything about starting a church. We were just hoping that people would show up, and eventually they did. But I just really uh, was thinking this week as I was uh, working on this talk, I was thinking this week about just my mindset then and now. You know, I've got six long years under my belt. I'm seasoned. You know, if you know any pastors that need some wisdom, you know, just send them to somebody else because I'm still in process. <laughs> but I just think about those early days, and I just think about how, you know, kind of desperate you are to just get some people in the seats and how, you know, when people hear that a new church has started, you really get some interesting people that show up, usually people that don't have the best of motives and intentions. And I just remember in those early days, we'd get all these people that would come up to me after service, and they would just, they would just be so flattering. And as a young preacher just trying to figure out, you know, if you're doing the right job, you, you just, you just got to eat that up. And they would just come, and they would just say, oh, there is just a there's just God's glorious in this place, man of God. You really, you know, like brought a great word today. And then they would proceed to just sort of give me their resume. They've, you know, led thousands to the Lord. They've done crusades. They touched the hem of, you know, Benny Hinn's cloak. They got all these fantastic things. I just remember in those early days being really impressed with, like, talented, flashy people. And oftentimes those people would just, you know, just be trying to vie for some type of position, try, trying to you know, get in at the ground level of something to be important. And those people who came up and flattered us and tried to be, uh, you know, showcase their talent and try to push themselves forward, you know what? Those people never stuck around. They never stuck around. And so, frankly, when I, you know, those people come these days, they just tell me all their stuff and lay out their resume and tell me how awesome they are. And they say, Pastor, what do you want me to do? And these days I just go, you know what, this same time next week, 
we're going to be doing this same thing. Just come next week. Just, just show up. Just show up. We're not going to put you to work. We're not going to give you a title. We're not going to give you a parking spot. Just show up again, and then we'll see if you're made of the right stuff. <coughs> to contrast that, the folks who have stuck and become just really pillars of this community, who've supported it with their time, their talent, their resource, to really serve to make this place great, are the people who just come, they visit, they say hi, they don't make any promises, they don't try to stand out, they don't try to showcase their talent. You know what they do? They just come back next week. You know, they come back next week, and they come back the following week, and maybe they come to a small group, and maybe they join a team, and maybe they, you know, they just do the regular average, just, you know, faithfulness, obedience. And, and what I've learned most in the last six years is that talent is really overrated. You know, talent and the flashy stuff it's really overrated. And for those of us who seek to do ministry for the long haul and be really good stewards of what God has given us in, in churches and organizations like this, we would just really come to the realization that talent and flashiness and all the flashy stuff is really overrated. What I'm finding that really matters is that people who are just available to God, uh, people who are just faithful and steadfast and dependable, and they'll just keep turning up and they'll keep turning up and they'll keep showing up, and so what I'm finding about all out about these people who just keep showing up, the people who are faithful, they have hearts, they have hearts of gold. Hearts of gold. The type of people you wouldn't mind leaving your kids with. You know what I'm saying? Like people that you can trust and that you can count on. And so the more I focus on that, the more I see that when I look in God's word, that the people who I want to be most like weren't the flashiest. They weren't the snazziest. They weren't necessarily the most talented. They were just people who were available to God, and they just kept showing up, and God used them. One such person in the Scripture is the Old Testament character, King David. And so I want to invite you over the next few weeks to join me as I kick off a brand new series this morning that I'm simply calling Lessons from the Life of David. If you've been hanging around for any number of time, you know, periodically we pick uh, an influential character in the Bible, and we just sort of camp out in their story, and we draw out some really good life lessons, biblical spiritual lessons from their life. And we pick David because there's lots and lots of stuff to look at with this guy. And so you might ask, why look at the life of David? Why is David important to us? Why should it be important to me? Well, the Scripture calls David a man after God's own heart. And that sounds really awesome until you read about some of David's less than shining moments. You discover David wasn't that great of a parent. You discover that uh, David had some significant moral failures and much, much more. And so when you look at the life of David and when you hear that God, you know, David was a man after God's own heart, it kind of destroys this myth that God is looking to use perfect people. It destroys this myth that God is looking for a sense of flawlessness before he can get to work and do something meaningful in your life. It points to the truth that God can often, and God can and often does, write straight with crooked lines. That God can throw straight with crooked sticks. To put simply, God can use imperfect people to get his stuff down. And I know we have a couple perfect people in the room, but it is this encouraging for... This is encouraging for guys like me, um, guys that have issues, 
Uh, the guys that haven't got it figured out, guys that, you know, sometimes mess up and sometimes mess up a lot and sometimes mess up in big ways. It's encouraging to know and to hear and to see God using people mightily even though they have issues, even though they haven't quite got things figured out yet. And so David is a classic story of God using an imperfect person to do something great in his kingdom. But I think in order to look at this person of, uh, of David's story, David's story is sort of intertwined with a couple of other people's story. And I'm going to try briefly to just uh, introduce you to two characters that are very important for you to know in order for you to understand David's story. And that's the prophet Samuel and King Saul. The prophet Samuel and King Saul. So we first encounter Samuel and Saul at the very beginning of the book of 1 Samuel. That's in the Old Testament. And we find these guys at a very significant moment in the nation of Israel's history. You see, they're switching up their government structure. They're moving from a theocracy. A theocracy is simply a system of government in which the priests rule the people in the name of God. They're moving from a theocracy to a monarchy, which basically means they'll be ruled by a king. Now, you have to understand that God's plan for his people was to be ruled by a theocracy. He wanted men and women of, men and women of God to, ju- to, to serve as judges and to lead the people. But guess what? The people started looking over the fence. They looked at all the pagan nations around them and said, hey, God, we want a king. We want to be like those guys. And so the prophet Samuel goes to, um, goes to God on behalf of the people and says, hey, the people want a king. God says, listen, no. Tell them all the stuff that will go down if you get a king. Just be clear with them. Samuel goes back to him and says, hey, this is all the stuff that's going to happen. The people say, we want a king. And so God relents. He gives them a king. This is not his plan, but he helps them move from a theocracy to a monarchy. And so God selects Saul to be uh, Israel's first king. This was not God's will, um, but it's what the people wanted. And at first, Saul was a humble guy. At first, Saul was somebody who God could work with. But shortly after Saul gets going, he starts to get full of himself. He starts to do his own thing. And the scriptures tell us in 1 Samuel chapter 15 that God rejects Saul. God rejects Saul as his king. And as Saul has been rejected, God seeks to appoint a new king. And this is where David comes in. Okay? So David is a replacement for Saul. So before we begin to unpack this series and unpack David's story, I want to help you by removing a potential barrier for some of you, and that barrier is that David was a king. And some of us can't relate to kingliness in our context. You know, that would like being president. That's such a lofty position. And so it might be difficult for some of you to interact with a story of God dealing with such an important person. But let me just sort of bring this down for us just a little bit particularly for those of you who are asking, how can I draw significant life lessons from how God dealt with and used such an important person? I want to bring this down to a low shelf so that we can all grasp it by saying this, God has something for all of us to do. God has something for all of us to do. Listen, we can't all be president. You know, we can't all be kings. You know, we can't all be pastors and prophets and apostles, you know, somebody's got to make the donuts. 
You know, somebody's got to teach the children in the high school. Somebody's got to be law enforcement. Somebody's got to go to law school and, and, and litigate on the behalf of people who don't, aren't skilled to do that. Some of us have to work at Target. And some of us sell cosmetics with Mary Kay. And some of us work in preschools. And some of us are editors for publication companies. And I go on all the list. Somebody's got to do that stuff. And so I think it's important for us to, to start to realize that God doesn't hold the preachers way up here and the important people way up here. And for those of you who work a regular job, well, you just go and make a living. You know, the scriptures tell us that whatever we do, we should do it as unto the glory of God. And so whatever you do in your life, whatever you do to make a living, Whatever you do and use your life for, you could be a student right now. You can be in college. You can be in high school, middle school. Whatever you do, God has you right where he wants you. And what you do for a living is significant and important. And so when we look at the life of David, let's not look at, oh, that's what God is working with in the life of a king, of an important person. This is what God is doing in the life of a person who surrendered to him. This is what God is doing in the life of a person who said yes you know, yes, and yes again. Yes, when it's difficult, and yes, when it doesn't look good, and yes, when I don't feel like it. This is what God does in the life of a surrendered person. Does that make sense? Now, of course, the stakes are much higher for leaders. We have a lot at stake. We're leading people, but God doesn't play favorites in that way. So we're looking at lessons from the life of David, and we'll start at the very beginning of David's story. And at the very beginning of David's story, we learn a valuable lesson that will set the tone for the rest of the series, and that is that God looks at the heart. God looks at the heart. A lot of valuable lessons that we'll talk about from the life of David. But at the very beginning, this valuable lesson is something that we need to learn and internalize. This is so important. Why is this important? In a world of cosmetic surgery, in a world where you can fix yourself to be anything that you want, you can buy your looks if you don't have it, you can buy a degree if you don't want to earn it, you can do all sorts of stuff, and we live in an age of social media where you can create your own profile, read, you can create and be whoever you want to be online, you can edit your pictures to where people don't recognize you, you know, when they actually see you in person. You can create your own you. You can be as honest or as deceptive as you want. You can make your outer shell appear to be pretty much whatever you want it to be. And because of that, we're so easily fooled. And because of that, we so easily fool others. It's so easy for us to judge the outer shell of a person. And it's so easy for us to be judged and to be marked and to be labeled and to be named by our outer shell. Usually is the case when people find us at our, our, at our worst moments. And so one of the most encouraging and most frightening truths about God is that God cannot be fooled. He can't be fooled. That's encouraging because... You know, we know that God sees us and he knows us. It's frightening because, you know, God sees us and he knows us. Can't be juked. It can't be, you know, you, know, you, can't, you can't be slick with him. God looks 
at the heart. And we see this at the beginning of David's story. We're going to look at 1 Samuel chapter 16. If you want some homework this week, go ahead and read 1 Samuel chapter 1 through 15. Just catch up. And you can follow along throughout the week. 1 Samuel chapter 16. We're going to look at that chapter this morning. There are Bibles on the edges of your row. If you don't have a Bible, I'll also be projecting it on the screens. Let me pray this morning. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for this opportunity. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. We thank you, Lord, for how you impact us with your truth. You don't let us stay the same. And so, Lord, I pray that our hearts this morning would be a soft landing strip uh, for your truth. Lord, would you go before us and remove anything that would cause us to bristle at the truth, uh, be in denial about where we are. Lord, remind us this morning that you look at the heart, that we can't fool you. And so, Lord, we give you permission to cut through all this exterior, all this posturing, and all this spin and misdirection, Lord, that we ask that you you would cut through to the heart and see who we really are today. Show us who we really are. Speak your word and truth to us, Lord. Put power in these words that you give me to speak. Move the preacher out of the, war- out of the way this morning, Lord, so that your truth and your light may shine through. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <coughs> verse Samuel chapter 16. We'll begin in verse 1. Now the Lord said to Samuel the prophet, You have mourned long enough for Saul. I have rejected him as king of Israel, so fill your flask with olive oil and go to Bethlehem. Find a man named Jesse who lives there, for I have selected one of his sons to be my king. Verse 2, but Samuel asked, how can I do that? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. Take a heifer with you, the Lord replied, and say that you have come to make a sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you which one of his sons to anoint for me. So Samuel did as the Lord instructed. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town came trembling to meet him. What's wrong, they asked. Do you come in peace? Yes, Samuel replied, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Purify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Then Samuel performed the purification rite for Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice too. When they arrived, Samuel took one look at Eliab and thought, Surely this is the Lord's anointed. But the Lord said to Samuel, Don't judge by his appearance or height, for I have rejected him. The Lord doesn't see the things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but what? God, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse took his oldest son, Abinadab, to step forward and walk in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, this is not the one the Lord has chosen. Next, Jesse summoned Shemiah. But Samuel said, neither is this the one the Lord has chosen. In the same way, all, of seven, all, all seven of Jesse's sons were presented to Samuel. But Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen any of these. Then Samuel asked, are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse replied, but he's out in the fields watching the sheep and goats. Send for him at once, Samuel said. We will not sit down to eat until he arrives. Verse 12, so Jesse sent for him. He was dark and handsome and with beautiful eyes. And the Lord said, this is the one, anoint him. So as David stood there among his brothers, Samuel took the flask of oil he had brought and anointed David with the oil, and the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David from that day on. Then Samuel Samuel returned to Ramah. Verse 14, Now the Spirit of the Lord had left Saul, and the Lord sent a tormenting spirit that filled him with depression and fear. Some Some of Saul's servants said to him, A tormenting spirit from God is troubling you. Let us find a good musician to play the harp whenever the tormenting spirit troubles you. He will play soothing music, 
and you will soon be well again. All right, Saul said, find me someone who plays well and bring him to me. One of the servants said to Saul, one of Jesse's sons from Bethlehem is a talented harp player. Not only that, he is a brave warrior, a man of war, and has good judgment. He is also a fine-looking young man, and the Lord is with him. So Saul sent messengers to Jesse to say, send me your son David, the shepherd. Jesse responded by sending David to Saul along with a young goat, a donkey loaded with bread and wineskin full of wine. So David went to Saul and began serving him. Saul loved David very much, and David became his armor bearer. Then Saul sent word to Jesse asking, Please let David remain in my service, for I am very pleased with him. And whenever the tormenting spirit from God troubled Saul, David would play the harp. Then Saul would feel better, and the tormenting spirit would go away. And so in chapter 16 here, we first meet David. And so there's an interesting thing unfolding here. The, the, the passage opens uh, sort of where the um, last chapter ends, and the last chapter ends with the prophet Samuel kind of in mourning. Samuel is God's man, and he's really, really upset that Saul isn't working out. He's really, really upset that Saul is turning his heart from the Lord, doing his own thing, really upset because God has rejected Saul. And so it goes into this period of mourning. And so this chapter opens with God saying, listen, Saul, Samuel, you've mourned long enough. I've, I've, I've moved on from Saul. And so now we got to get down to the business of choosing another suitable king. And so he gives Samuel a plan. He said, listen, go to Bethlehem. Go over and talk to Jesse. Jesse's got a son that I'm going to anoint king. Now the prophet has an issue with this. And how are you going to go and choose another king when there's already a rather ignorant king on the throne, right? Uh, Samuel's like, hey, this isn't a good plan. You know, Saul's going to hear about this. There's going to be some issues. And so the Lord says, listen, just go and make a sacrifice. Just do your, you know, do your prophetly, priestly thing and just invite Jesse to come and sacrifice with you. And then you can just kind of low-key do the anointing, you know, oil on him, and then you can hit the road, Right? And so they hatched this plan. And so then, this is where we start to see the selection process happen. This is where the selection process happened. This is where we see, you know, it realized that God really looks at the heart. And we discover two things as we see this story unfold. Two things that sort of flow out of this truth that God looks at the heart. And the first truth that we find is that looks can be deceiving. Looks can be deceiving. And so if you study the Lord, if you study his patterns and his ways as you look at his word, and even as you sort of walk with him, you know that the Lord often looks beyond the surface of things. And since we are people who have to choose and make decisions and develop relationships based on these decisions and choose jobs based on these decisions, you know, choose suitable mates you know, to marry or to date based on these decisions. God is impressing upon us through his word the significance of looking beyond the surface, the significance of understanding that looks can be very, very deceiving. Verse 6 says that when uh, they arrived, Samuel took one look at Eliab and thought, surely this is the Lord's anointed. Eliab was the oldest of Jesse's sons. No doubt he was a stout grisly, kingly-looking man. And Samuel looks at him and goes, hey, you know, this is going to be a short trip. This big, burly guy, no doubt he had a beard. No doubt he was looking very strong. 
And Samuel almost blew it. Now, this is the prophet. This is the guy who regularly hears the voice of the Lord. This is a seer. This guy could tell you the paintings on your wall at home through the power of the Spirit. And in just a few moments, he looks at this strong, kingly-looking guy, and he almost blows it because looks can be deceiving. Looks can be deceiving. And so what does the Lord say to Samuel, verse 7? Don't judge by his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearances, but the Lord looks at the heart. And so what's the lesson here? The lesson is that there's more to situations. There's more to people especially than what we can see on the surface. I'll be honest with you in saying that if I'm not careful, I can do the same thing. I'm naturally drawn to people who are wired like me. And if I just sort of rest on that and just sort of float down the lazy river of preference and I'm just going by how things look, I would only surround myself with people who think like me, who vote like me, who have my same drive and have my same uh, you know, vision, who, 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 who have the same interest as me. And early on in ministry... I learned, the Lord spoke to me through a person that I know, her name is Shannon. For those of you who don't know, that's my wife. And she said, and I'm paraphrasing, you know, you can't just, you know, pick people like you. It would be a grave mistake to just be drawn to people like you. And so I just, I, I imagine Samuel walking into this room being struck by the stature of this boy. Uh, imagine what grave error he might have made had he chosen Eliab. And some of you are in the same position. God is called, putting you in positions to you, you're in positions in your life where you need to make decisions. Some of you are dating, and some of you are waiting, and some of you have been waiting for a while, and your list of requirements for made is the years tick off. It just gets shorter and shorter and shorter, and all of a sudden. You're choosing something based on your situation. You're choosing something based on de- de- desperation. You're choosing something or you're choosing against something because of how it looks. Some of you are choosing career paths and things like that for your children, and you're choosing based on the surface. And God would say to us, God looks deeper than the surface of things. Deeper than that. And so Eliab comes in, and Abinadab comes in, and Shemia comes in, and all of, Saul, uh, all of Jesse's sons come in, one after the other. And now, you know, Samuel has his prophetic hat on. He has the right lenses on. He says, none of these guys. Are, are you sure? You know, are you sure this is it? And then Jesse goes, oh, you know, I do have another son. I do have another son, the little, the, the runt, the, the, the little one. He's out this year. We didn't even bother to bring him to this thing. We didn't even bother to bring him to this thing. And here's Jesse, you know, David's own dad. Didn't consider him for this, you know, divine encounter with the Lord. And so Samuel says, listen, man, there's more. Go get him. We're not going to start until he gets here. And sure enough, David walks in. The prophet Samuel lays eyes on him. He goes, that's it. That's the one. Verse 12 says, so Jesse sent for him. He was dark and handsome beautiful eyes, and the Lord said, this is the one, anoint him. And so I don't know if you've ever read the story of Saul, but this is 
kind of Saul's deal. Saul was a big, handsome guy, great military strategist, right? And so it would seem that, you know, the, the prophet Samuel might make the mistake of rejecting somebody who is handsome. <laughs> might be thinking, like, hey, God wants a, you know, Shrek-looking guy because the last good-looking guy didn't quite work out. Well, guess what? God uses good-looking people, too. And I'm glad because, you know, I would hate to be disqualified from this. <laughs> It's really a joke. <laughs> At least you thought it was funny. Yeah. <laughs> My God, he's just good-looking people, man. And so God was looking for the opposite of Saul. He wasn't necessarily looking for some ogrely figure. He was looking for, for the opposite of Saul's character. He was looking for the opposite of Saul's character. Somebody to be different on the inside. And so the prophet took one look at David, took one look at him, and said, this is the guy. And so what did God see? What did God see that was so amazing about David? What did God draw himself to? He drew himself to who David was. And we've been talking a lot about identity and, you know, being who God called us to be. And we've just defined identity as, you know, what did God have in mind for you when he created you? Scriptures tell us that from the very beginning of time, God knew us and had a plan for our life. It's no mistake that you're doing what you're doing. It's no mistake that you've fallen into the rhythm of life that you're in. God had a plan for you. And so this is what was in the cards for David. And so when Samuel comes and anoints David, God essentially calls uh, David who he is. You're a king. Doesn't matter that you're tending sheep. Doesn't matter that you're the youngest runt of the litter and that you're running errands for your father. They didn't think much of you to even invite you to the meeting that could possibly change the course of your life. It doesn't matter, but God calls him who he is. He's a king. This is what God had in mind for him. God looked deep into the essence, the core of who this person was, and he didn't even see, only see godly character, which we'll talk about a little bit later, but he saw plan, he saw purpose. He saw purpose. And God says, I know you're a shepherd boy right now. I know you're running errands for your father. I know that they don't think much of you, but boy, you're a king. You're a king. You're a king. And it's for this reason that I don't let anybody call me anything other than what God calls me. And don't you call yourself anything other than what God calls you. Last week during ministry time, the Lord spoke to us and said this. Listen, some of us have just been named by the enemy. And through the course of your life, well-intentioned people, people who had influence, people who spoke into your life, they named you something and you became that. God calls you his son. God calls you his daughter. God calls us royal priests, but somebody named you stupid when you're this high and you start living that out. Somebody called you fat and you became that. That's your identity. You call yourself that. You, you joke about that. You became that. Somebody called you a whore and you became that. Somebody said you were slow or that you wouldn't amount to much. Or that, you know, some counselor told you, hey, maybe you should learn a trade. And they, and they stopped the development. They stopped, you know, they rerouted your life. 
in the way that the, only the evil one does. They named you something. And so I'm here to tell you that God doesn't call you anything other than what he planned and purposed for you to be, and what he purposed and planned for you to be is good. I didn't say it would be easy. You may not even pick that path for your life. But what God calls you, what God names you, is good. Because all the grace and all the provision will unfold before you if you walk that out, if you walk out what he named you. And so just, just to have, give you something to look forward to at the end during ministry time, we're going to call that back again. Because I think there are more folks that need to respond to that. You've been named something. And so if you, if you, if you have to wonder if that's you, I'm probably not talking to you, but some of you, even right now, you're thinking of things that you've been named and things that you've become. And so what God named David in this moment, called out his identity, looked beneath the surface of this small runt of a man and called him king. Scriptures tell us, so as David stood there among his brothers, in front of his brothers, Samuel took the flask of oil he had brought and anointed David with oil, and the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully on David from that day on. God confirmed with the Spirit. For the prophet Samuel knew in his heart is that God had chosen this young man to be the king. Samuel almost missed it. Jesse almost missed it. But God spoke. He looked beneath the surface and saw David's heart. And there was a king in that heart. So looks can be deceiving. The second thing that we see and that we know is that God knows exactly where you are. And that's encouraging for some. And that's frightening for those of us who are trying to hide. Thinking you can hide, you can hide from the preacher. You can hide really well because half the time I'm not looking for you, right? But you cannot hide from the Lord because he knows exactly where you are. Not just your coordinates, but where you are in here. We're talking about the heart today. God knew exactly where Saul was in his heart and in his thinking. And Saul's heart was situated far from God. That's why he was rejected. Saul's heart was far from God or just casually connected. And that's why God rejected him in the same way God knew where David was. He knew where David was. And even as a young boy, even as a young boy, God knew that David's heart was near to him. That David was a worshiper. That David's heart was connected to God in a significant way, and God came looking for David exactly where he knew he'd find him in a good place of the heart, in a good place of the heart. And some of you ask God, Lord, I've been praying for this promotion. I've just been praying for this thing. I've been praying for this spouse. Why hasn't, happened, why hasn't it happened yet? Why hasn't this unfolded yet? And God would say, because I know exactly where you are. I can't trust you with that yet. I can't give you that yet. I love the parable of the three servants in Matthew chapter 25 where you know, Jesus tells this story of him going into this town and um, finding three, you know, the master finds three of his servants and he gives one five and he gives one three and he gives another one. And the guys that he's given five and three to, they go and invest it and they double it. But the guy he gives one to, he goes and he buries it. 
I think the pivotal verse in that story is uh, chapter 25, verse 15, where it says the Lord gave each of them according to their abilities. That is to say that God knew exactly what they were capable of. He knew exactly what they would do with it. And so he gave little to the person who would do nothing, and he gave much to the folks who he knew would do something with it. And sure enough, the guys with five and three, they multiplied it, they doubled it. And Jesus says, hey, come on, let's party. Good and faithful servant." And so in the same way, I just got a sense that as God knows exactly where we are, he knows exactly, you know, what we would do with what he gives us. And so you, when I used to interact with that parable, I would, go, I would look at the things that God has given me and say, oh, I want to be a good steward of this. I want to make sure I'm being a good steward. But lately I've been asking the question, what don't I have? And why can't God trust me with that yet? I'm not talking about some extravagant thing, you know, that is far out of reach, that's on my bucket list, you know, some outlandish. I'm talking about some things that I know that's in the trajectory for my life. I know that's in the plan for my life that it hasn't unfolded yet. It hasn't come to pass yet. And I know that God is a good, good father, and he won't give me something that I can't handle. And so my question these days is, Lord, since you know my heart, you know what I can handle, you know what I would steward well, you know what I would steward poorly, why is it? What is it about me? that God can't trust me with that yet. Remember in those early days of planting a church, we would say, Lord, just send us thousands of people on the second service. We'll take care of them. And we could only seat probably 80 people in our, in our, in our, you know, in our room, but we wanted, we wanted the nations. Just bring them in. And when that didn't happen, I would just sort of get upset, and the Lord said, you know what, you, 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 what, you, what, you're not ready for that. You would kill those people, and they would probably kill you. And so all along the way, when I find there's unmet, you know, these, these desires that I have or these longings that I have or the next step isn't coming from me, I go, Lord, what, 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 what can't you trust me with you and why? And why do I ask that question? That's a mature question. Why? Because I know that God knows exactly where I am. And when he saw David, he saw a guy that can handle this. He saw a guy whose heart was pure. He saw a guy who wouldn't reject him at the first sight of fame. He saw a guy who would honor him and wait on his plan to unfold. God saw his heart. And so I want to just highlight as I wind this thing down three things that God saw in David's heart. And what I want to ask you is, what, do God, does God find these things in your heart as he looks beneath the surface? As he looks you know, past this facade that we put. What, what, what might God find in your heart? And so the first thing that I see that God finds in David's heart is just a spirit of humility. A spirit of humility. And this is a heart, these are heart issues. And ask yourself, do I have that? Do I have a spirit of humility? They said to him, they, Saul said to one of the servants, listen, find me somebody who plays well. And one of the servants said to Saul, one of Jesse's sons from Bethlehem is a talented heart player. Not only that, he is a brave warrior, a man of war. He has good judgment. He is also a fine-looking man, and the Lord is with him. The Lord is with him. And so this humility within David gave him a passion for God's greatness and a passion for God's bigness. And when you have a passion for God's greatness and you have a passion for God's bigness, you are well aware of your smallness. 
your relative smallness. And so David has a high view of God. And as such, he sees God as great and grand and big. And he sees himself as small in a healthy, appropriate way. He sees himself as small. He remains humble. He never lost his sense of awe and wonder. And some of us, our problem isn't that we're bad people. Some of us, our problem isn't that we're even poor stewards. It's just somewhere along the line, we lost our sense of awe for the bigness and the greatness of God. We've, you know, we wear t-shirts that you, Jesus is my homeboy. God is, you know, we just, we just cool. We're homies. And God's not your homie. He's God. You know, he spoke to nothing and created everything that we see. Sent his only son to die for you and me. We're not homies. You're God. I bow low. I tremble in your presence. We're not homies. And so David never lost a sense of awe and wonder. And he was a man of God. And even people that didn't know him that well had heard that the Lord was with him. Heard that he was a worshiper. They heard that he was a humble guy. Now get this. David had just been anointed king. He'd just been anointed king. And so for some of us, if that had happened to us, we'd be like, listen, man, I mean, let's go do some king stuff. Let's go get fitted for some robes. Let's go pick out some crowns. Let's put one on layaway, you know, for, for when this thing happens. No. Spirit of humility. But this didn't just overtake David when he was anointed. God saw this in him, which is what qualified him, the spirit of humility. Are you humble? Are you humble? Now, we don't have any king vacancies, but, I mean, some of you, you know, the Lord just can't progress you in your job. You're wondering, you say, I'm qualified. You know, why hasn't this next thing happened for me? You're just not humble. You spend too much time reading your own press clippings and watching your own highlights and wondering why everybody just won't get it together and be like you. Are you humble before the Lord? We're not even talking about within the realm of, like, Christendom. Now, we're talking about at your job, at at your school, with your spouse. I mean, I don't think God just doesn't use people mightily who, who aren't humble who aren't humble. And so when God came to locate David, he saw within him a spirit of humility. The second thing he saw was a spirit of obedience. A spirit of obedience. Listen, this is a distinguishing mark of somebody that God can and will use, somebody who has a spirit of obedience. This is what God saw in David. David that had wrote, you know, with his life, just a a blank check to the Lord. Say, Lord, just fill it in. You'll fill it in. You'll send me, you know, you send me across the river somewhere, just fill it in. You want me to take a pay cut? Fill it in, Lord. You want me to lead the, the small group, Lord? Just, just fill it in. And so that's not something that happens once you've be, uh, been selected. That's something that you, you get selected because God knows that he has that open-ended yes from you. And so somebody say, Lord, why haven't you used me to do this? Why, why haven't you used me to do this, Lord? I just send me to the nation. So the Lord said, you won't go to small group. 
Lord, bless me with this so I can take your, proclaim your name to this. And the Lord said, listen, you, you barely will, you know, just you barely will serve. I'm going to trust you with the nations? No. And so what did he know about David? He knew that David had a spirit of obedience, desire to honor God's name no matter where he found himself. Spirit of obedience. It's David would say yes to the role of being king, but, you know, if you know the story, you know some, uh, more than a decade would pass before David would actually become king. And so it's easy to say yes to being the king. But what if in the meantime, you had to do some less than awesome things? Verse 21 tells us, So David went to Saul and began serving him. And whenever the tormenting spirit uh, from God uh, troubled Saul, David would play the harp, and David became Saul's armor-bearer. He'd just been anointed king, and he's polishing armor. He's polishing swords. He's the, you know, he's the, he's the house musician for the crazy king that needs to be, you know, sued when the, when the demons start churning up. This is, this is a king. Spirit of obedience. Do you pass the obedience test? Some of us don't. I'm talking about in the small things. I mean, it usually starts with the small things. Some of us haven't passed the test of obedience as it relates to generosity. You struggle with being generous to others. You struggle with being generous and faithful in generosity as it relates to God's kingdom and this local church. You struggle with that. Well, listen, that's a test. You know, I don't know if there's, I, I've been out of school for a long time, but, you know, when I p- fail the test, they give it to me again. When I didn't pass something, they, they would give it to me again. They kept giving it to me until, I, you know, I got a decent mark. And so, you know, if you don't pass the obedience test, you know, you'll just keep taking it. You'll, you'll just keep taking it. And maybe in your relationships, as it relates to how you're stewarding your body or how you're relating to your significant other or how you're treating people, these small obedience tests, the Lord says, how are you doing? I mean, he knows, he's asking you, and make sure you know. David passed in his heart the obedience test because his heart was a blank check that he'd written to the Lord. An open-ended yes before the question was even asked. Do you pass the obedience test? And finally, David had a spirit of courage. A spirit of courage. And this is what the Lord saw in him when he anointed him as king. And so all these things, as we go throughout David's story, you'll see these things play out. You'll see the humility. You'll see um, the obedience. You'll see the courage. But David had a spirit of courage. And I always need to remind people when I say courage, that courage is not fearlessness. It's a different thing. Fearlessness means that big opposing growling thing that doesn't scare me, bong, I took care of it. Courage is that thing terrifies me. Or that is wholly unpleasant, but in the spirit of obedience, I'm going to engage it anyway. This is a really unpleasant thing that the Lord is asking of me. It scares me to death. It shakes me to the bones, but in the spirit of courageousness, I will engage it. I will engage it. And so I think I need to also say that courage is not this, you know, this reckless boldness where you just, you know, just 
bowling people over and just grunting and just being, you know, courageous by a false definition. Sometimes courage tells you to shut your mouth and go get the armor polish even though you're a king. Sometimes courage has you doing the difficult daily tasks as you wait for God's unplanned to unfold, God's plan to unfold in your life. Sometimes God calls you to something that is dangerous. You know, it took some courage for David to accept this invitation from Saul. You know, Saul's a jealous guy. Saul's a fool. And so if I'm the incoming king, and I've received an invite to come hang out with the outgoing king, I wouldn't eat or drink anything over there. I will watch my back. There's the courage to do that. And more than courage to go there and accept that invitation, it took courage, it took an understanding of God's promises is going to come true. It took David understanding who he was and whose he was to go and to serve even though he should be wearing a crown. And so this courage isn't some boisterous, like, manliness, but rather it's obedience, like on steroids. It's obedience, even when things are scary, even when the road ahead of you is unclean. You know, people used to say before we planted, church, planted the church, that church planting is like you're up on this high diving board in this big swimming pool that has no water in it. And God says jump, and you have to trust that by the time you need some water, you know, you get to a place where you need some water in there, that God will have some water in it. I, it that doesn't sum up courage. I don't know what does. And so we're all called to plant churches. Some of you are just called to, you know, call your father who you haven't spoken to in years. Some of you have the courage to just apologize for something that you've done wrong. Some of you are like David and you serve in your natural job just a fool of a boss. And everything within you wants to cut him to the quick and show him how smart you are and show him how an idiot, how much of an idiot he is. And what the Lord would say to you is, hey, don't forget that you represent me. Uh, don't forget on casual Fridays, you know, you wear that vineyard shirt and you represent me. And so courage is asking us to do the hard thing. And we see in this passage and we'll see in the coming passages that God is asking David, David to be courageous. But that's exactly what God saw in David when he anointed him king. The spirit of humility, a spirit of obedience, open-ended yes, and the spirit of courage. Dare I ask you today, how do you fare with those three things? You know, what's usually true is that the people who are experiencing some functionality in their life, richness and sweetness and fellowship with the Lord and others, they would generally answer that, yeah, I got a ways to go, but generally speaking, I'm doing okay in those areas. But, this, you know, if I ask folks who are limping through life, always a step behind, always late to everything, always struggling, always a day late and a dollar short, they would say, you know what, I, I'm struggling with the humility. I, I'm struggling with the obedience. I haven't said yes to God in, in, a, in an ongoing sense. I'm struggling with courage, and I like the discipline it is to do the hard things over and over and over again. And I'll say to those of you who are struggling today, 
I say to those of you who uh, just are a step behind in life, you're just disheveled and your life is just raggedy. Don't blame your circumstances. Don't blame your husband. Don't blame the exterior circumstances. Ask yourself, am I humble? Ask yourself, am I obedient to the Lord? Do I quickly respond? Do I, have I given the Lord an open-ended yes? And no matter how scary it is, no matter how uncomfortable it is, I would say yes, and I would say yes, and I would say yes again. Am I courageous? Do I do the hard things? Do I do the hard things? And some of you, not externally, but inwardly, you say, that's my problem. That's my issue. And so this is precisely why God chose David. And for some of us, the inverse is true of us. This is precisely why the Lord has said no or not yet to you. Because you struggle in these areas. I don't say these things to condemn you. I say these things today to remind you that God looks at the heart. You can fool the preacher. You can fool your small group. You can fool your boss. But you cannot fool God. The scriptures tell us that God's justice won't be mocked. Whatever we sow, that we will also reap. And frankly... Some of us have just sown laziness. We've sown casualness to things that God called us not to be casual about. We've sown indifference. And that's what we reap. Our lives are raggedy. We don't have any joy in our salvation. We don't have any sweetness in our fellowship with God and with others because we've lacked in these key areas. But listen, you know, it's not hopeless. It's not hopeless. And worship team, you can come up. So what the Lord did today, he put a mirror in front of us. And some of you, when you looked at the mirror, you thought, eh, not so bad. I can touch that up. I, you know, touch that up. And some of us, when God put that mirror up, you go, eh. I got some work to do. But all of God's truth is redemptive. You may be a mess today, but you don't have to stay a mess. You may be struggling and limping through life today, but you don't have to stay that way. The Holy Spirit is here to change some things around. And so I think what the Lord wants to do today, he wants to change some of our names. Actually, not change our names. He wants us to walk in and own the name that he gave us, sons and daughters of his. And secondly, I think the Lord wants today to, to challenge us in the realm of humility, challenge us in the realm of obedience, challenge us in the realm of courage. Are you up for the challenge? I hope so. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much that you look, you look beyond the surface of things. Lord, you get the x-ray machine out. When we look good on the outside, but we're rotting on the inside, things are fractured on the inside. Lord, we need to see that. And so we thank you, even though it's hard to look at, even though we cringe. We thank you, Lord, that you show us that picture. And so, Lord, we know that you're also the great physician. You don't leave us that way, but through the inbreaking of your kingdom, Lord, you come to fix things that are broken. And so, Lord, if we're honest with you today, many of us, many of us would say, look, God, we're broken. We're in disrepair this morning. We, we need the great physician to come and heal. And so, Lord, I ask, Lord, that you would give us your eyes to see and to judge, to look beyond the surface, Lord. We ask that you would grant us the grace to be humble, the grace to be obedient, the grace to be courageous. Lord, I pray that you would take this out of the realm of the abstract and the general today, Lord, that you would assign specific tasks to these different realms of our life where we're struggling, so that we might engage you. We might lean in. And through leaning in, Father, we find the sweetness and the, the transformation that we need, Lord, and the functionality that comes 
with knowing you and walking with you. God, you look beyond the surface. You look at our hearts. And we ask that you would change us to that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.